Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. How do you make a video game? It is, in my opinion, the most difficult creative process in the world that I am familiar with. Um, as I've always said, if you're making a game, you're going to want to spend every second and every dollar making the best game possible. You will never be done with it, which I think is what most painters or, you know, visual artists say. It's not that you're done. It's that you stop and you have to be absolutely committed to perfection at every single aspect of it. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Blaine, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Hi, Srini. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. Uh, as I was saying before we hit record, I was introduced to you by way of our mutual friend, Michael Shine, who seems to be a steady source of uh, amazing people that he refers to this show. Uh, so no pressure at all. But uh, <laughs> before we get started, uh, I actually wanted to start asking what I think is a, a relevant question and a question that I've actually never started the show with before. And that is, what was the very first video game that you ever owned? And how did that end up influencing the choices that you ended up making with your life and career? Wow, that is a great question. I, well, certainly the first game I can remember owning and playing, and this actually ties in with our mutual friend, uh, Mike Shine, was chess on my Commodore 64 using a <laughs> dial-up modem with my best friend, Adam, who lived three streets away, who is Mike's cousin, which is how we know each other. Uh, so that was a quite a, uh, prescient question that, that you asked. I would wow. say the first sort of video game would definitely be Atari 2600. And, mm -hmm. you know, thinking of games like Tank and some of the other really early, uh, Atari games. Yeah. I very distinctly remember the, the Commodore 64 commercials on TV when I was growing up because it was the 80s. And I think this was pre-Nintendo. And I remember the Atari 2600 as well, because that was the first console that any one of my friends got. Um, 
So what do you think it is about gaming in particular that just it leads to this just rich and enormous subculture? That's a great question. And I, I guess I have my own opinion uh, about it, which is the open-endedness of interactivity. I, mm-hmm. I think really is, for me, what makes video games so unique from all other forms of entertainment and all other forms of just sort of computer technology as yeah. well is they are inherently and adamantly interactive. There's very little that you can do in and with a video game in which you're not interacting. And I think that just instantly changes the engagement mechanism for everyone involved. And it almost certainly creates a new kind of uh, engagement paradigm, if you will. And for me, it's what really opens up the creativity of, you know, how could you see these little 8-bit blocks on your Atari 2600 as a you know, tank or a Dungeons and Dungeons, uh, Dungeons and Dragons character or, um, you know, a spaceship or, or anything like that. It's the combination of interactivity and creativity. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I very distinctly remember like the fight with my parents was, you know, go do your studies, then you get to play Nintendo. And, uh, I'm curious you know, with your own parents, what, your relationship with them was like when it came to video games because i feel like in today's generation every parent is like concerned that video games are are violent video games make people stupid obviously i disagree these things like i don't think people should be couch potatoes and sit in front of a a console all day long but i you know being an avid gamer myself i'm the weirdo who plays sports video games but could give two damn shits about what's actually happening in professional (laughs) sports like i really don't know and don't care but i love sports video games and always have I, I, uh, I understand that there's, uh, I think that's the case for, for so many gamers, right? Is you don't have to love, uh, sport to play a sport video game. You don't have to love cars, but probably you do if you play Forza or one of the racing games, but you don't necessarily have to be an expert or super engaged in the, you know, original inspiration for the game. And I think it's great because it's, shown new ways to connect with audiences and certainly that's led to you know incredible things like esports where mm-hmm. most of the esports athletes are in athletes in the you know underlying game that uh it's based on like a soccer game or a football game or or any yeah. of the sports games and so um it absolutely just reaches entirely new audiences i would say for me My parents were definitely very supportive. I remember in grade school, we had a class called Special Interest. And in that class, we played Oregon Trail as part (laughs) of our class in school across multiple years, I remember. And I think it might have started out on paper before it actually even moved to a computer. Because mm. this would have been like late 70s, early you 80s. You might predate me that on this. Because, yeah, I played it on a computer. I'll have to tell you my story about that in a second. Um, but I, I would say from a very early uh, age and exposure to computers and video games, my parents were certainly very open and supportive. 
That said, to your counterpoint, I and all of my friends were very outdoor active. We lived by the mm-hmm. woods. We lived by the uh, Delaware River, which we called the creek. And we would, you know, go fishing and swimming and at a rope swing and build forts in the woods and play a lot of sports. So I, I think it was a really good balance. Yeah. Well, it's funny that you mentioned being outdoors. And I was just telling my dad the other day, because I've been at my parents' house for a little bit, uh, how in the 20 years that they've lived in this neighborhood, I honestly told him, I said, I think I can count on one hand the number of times that I've seen a couple of kids outside playing. And it's like a very upscale residential neighborhood. And I was like, doesn't that seem odd? How is that not odd to anybody? Because like, to your point, when we were growing up in the 80s, you know, your parents like basically said, be back by dinner. And that was it. You know, you pretty much walked out the door. And yeah, if you were in the house, it was because you were playing something like video games or board games. But we were outside a lot. Uh, so like, what do you think has happened to kids in this generation, particularly in the context of gaming? And um, what do you say to parents who are absolutely just concerned about this? Because We've had the CEO, uh, we've had the commissioner of the NBA 2K League here as a guest. Um, I had this former CEO of Take Two, uh, a company that makes Grand Theft Auto. He was pretty reluctant to talk about some of these things, I think probably because, you know, it basically a PR gag order kept him, from, you know, <laughs> on certain talking points. Uh, but I mean, from your perspective, talk to me about all that. Sure. So uh, we were the streetlight group. So we had to be home by the time the streetlights were on. So I, I know exactly what you mean. And it was pretty much expected that you were out of the house during that time. You know, I, I would say a lot of things contribute to a very skewed situation culturally. Because uh, you really mentioned, I think, a couple of things that are in some ways very separate, but mm-hmm. can be conflated into one thing regarding this question of like video games versus outdoor activities, let's say. So, you know, certainly the Grand Theft Auto example you brought up, there's, you know, a terrible, misguided, non-science-based narrative that video games cause violence or antisocial behavior. I'm not aware of any scientific uh, backing for that. It really was just a terrible narrative that got developed and, you know, don't want to assume what the motivations were for the, you know, folks that were developing it. But it was a really good talking point and a really strong narrative that they created, particularly because it touched on cultural divides and generational divides, right? So if you and I were kids of the 80s, we're growing up exposed to computers, but our parents and grandparents and legislators and, you know, various, uh, quote unquote, adults weren't. So just like past technology changes and revolutions, if you will, it's easy to become antithetical to the you know, paradigm change. Oh, this didn't exist before, so it's not good. Um, I, I, I definitely think that is one. I, I do think it's, it's hard not to notice that there is an unfortunate trend, which you pointed out of a lack of or a reduction, I guess, to be fair, because I'm always afraid of hyperbolic language. I think it's a little unproductive, right? So. You saw some kids outside playing. You just didn't see as many as you were used to when you were a kid. Totally. Um, 
And and I think that there's probably a lot of reasons for that reduction. And I, I would say a big part of it that I see is really the the physical structure of, you know, U.S., I guess you would say, uh, towns and neighborhoods and cities. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not very walkable. We used to walk to all of our friends' houses. We would ride our bikes to someplace or ride our skateboards to pretty far away. And I wouldn't necessarily say, sure, there was that, you know, trend of like, you know, kids should be afraid of like being far away and strangers. I don't really feel like that's a huge driver of it. But if my parents have to drive me in a car to go see my friends, I think that is a huge barrier to entry that just creates a lot of challenges. And if you go to a school that's 10, 15 minutes drive away. I mean, we could walk back and forth to school when we were kids. I don't know that everyone could, but, you know, everything was very walkable and very uh, accessible in a way that I just don't see in many towns and cities and neighborhoods nowadays. Absolutely. Uh, It's funny because I, I, one of my best friends I've met and became friends with him. He ended up being my roommate for three years because we played a video game together. Literally Mm -hmm. every Wednesday we would get together and we'd play NBA 2K for three to four hours. And at at times he would question whether we were being productive after we'd moved in together. I said, you realize the reason we're living together because of this ridiculous game. Uh, It's kind of what bonded us, Uh, which I, you know, I think that to me speaks to sort of the positive aspects of gaming. Uh, But how in the world do, do you go from sort of being, you know, somebody who is tinkering with this stuff as a kid and you know, a lot of kids play games, but not many think this is what I want to make a career out of. So how do you go from being this kid who's got this early interest in games to you know doing all the things you have in the industry? I credit near everything with attending Bennington College. I went to Bennington as a photography major. I had amazing exposure to the arts and sciences. But while I was at Bennington, and this was a time when Bennington was extremely small, maybe 350 or fewer students on the entire campus, somehow the school won a grant from a consortium called the New Media Center that was led by companies like Apple and Adobe and Kodak, Macromedia, which doesn't exist anymore. And they provided technology grants to primarily Ivy League schools. And again, I don't fully understand how Bennington got brought into this consortium, but it ended up that we had a lot of computer equipment really early. So this would have been early 90s multimedia equipment, scanners, cameras, computers, early um, uh, Kodak, the, the first ever, in fact, Kodak digital camera that we had access to. And because there were um, no computers on campus before, we didn't have internet, we barely had phones, we didn't have TV. Um, my photography professor, a gentleman named R- Neil Rappaport, who unfortunately has passed away since, and my mathematics professor, Ruben Puentadora, were the ones leading the effort to build out the new media center. 
And somehow when I found out about it, I was just instantly excited about the idea and opportunity and started dedicating myself to volunteering and eventually working there. And for me, that was really the start of everything of realizing the, first of all, potential of all of this technology from a creative standpoint, a storytelling standpoint, you know, the ability to make change in the world. Um, But then also from a, you know, business and career standpoint, we, I, along with a handful of other students, we started our first company while we were Mm -hmm. there doing CD-ROMs and websites, dating ourselves with the CD-ROM bit. (laughs) Yeah. We started our first business there at, at school. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So 
You know, I hear sort of two different versions of this story when it comes to college for people, those who basically spend the bulk of their college career doing something they hate, working jobs they hate, which is my story. Then I hear stories like yours where people are lucky enough to discover something that sort of drives them towards it at a very young age. Um, One, why do you think that people miss it? And, you know, for young people who are in an educational institution, how do they create an environment that basically allows for the discovery of these kinds of experiences and opportunities? Well, for I can speak to my experience, which was probably unique-ish. Uh, first of all, I, I didn't go to college directly after high school. I, I took a semester off and traveled a bit uh, in the U.S., and that really gave me the time to think more about where I wanted to go to school. Um, not so much what my career goals were, but the type of environment that I wanted to be in. And ultimately for me, I decided I wanted to be in a rural, not urban environment. And I really wanted to be in an open-ended creative environment. Uh, and Bennington certainly checked all those boxes. I had been lucky enough to be exposed to Bennington. My high school girlfriend went to the summer program at Bennington. And when I went up there to visit her, I was just so blown away by the the beauty and the resources of the school that it was just, you know, a very exciting prospect. Um, but I would say the big turning point for me was about a year and a half into going to Bennington, I realized I wasn't taking it seriously. And at the time, Bennington was the most expensive college in the country, and I was paying for a large portion of it, including having a job where I woke up at, I think, like six in the morning to go make clay in the ceramics studio so that I could sort of bang out my college job before the day started. And I just realized I wasn't taking it seriously, and I decided to drop out and Originally, I wasn't planning to go back. I traveled in the U.S. and ultimately in Europe. And in connecting back with students from Bennington that happened to be in Paris on an international program, I really came to see the mistakes that I had made not taking the previous time seriously and what I could get out of applying myself. And so for me, it was really reevaluating the choice of why was I there and coming to a resolution of if I was going to be there, I was going to be dedicated. And I went Mm. back and I started taking five classes instead of four. I was very lucky, as I mentioned earlier, with exposure to the new media center. Um, I started doing, you know, a lot of hands-on work that I just never would have applied myself to before. So I, I guess to generalize that, it's really to have a deep look inside of yourself of why are you doing this? Not what do you get want to get out of it, which I think is often the case, but really why are you doing this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, that's that's one of those questions that uh, I think that is so important. And, and, you know, like some version of that comes up in nearly every conversation I have. And the thing I always say is like, if somebody had asked me to, like, look at that question as an 18 year old kid, I would have thought this sounds like a bunch of new age nonsense. You have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I reflect on it now. And and so, like, I always wonder, like, how do you 
integrate something into a curriculum that facilitates this kind of thinking that, you know, enables people to look beyond just, hey, I need to take these classes to get, you know, this degree to get this job, but really look at, okay, what is the purpose of all this? Like, what do I want to do? And how does it align with my life goals? And at the same time, like, you know, at that age, I don't think you know enough about yourself or the world to make, you know, a long-term commitment or decision. I, I agreed. For for me, Bennington, it was a very unique time at Bennington. That's a whole other podcast. But one of the big things uh, about Bennington at the time, I'm not quite sure if it's still exactly the same, is you didn't get grades, you get comments. And the comments would range from being very academic to being very open-ended. But also at the time, if you didn't apply yourself you weren't really going to get a lot of pushback or problem from the institution, but you also weren't going to get a lot of attention from your peers and professors. And so I thought that self-regulation, at least for me, worked really well. It wasn't about getting good grades or bad grades. It was actually about how seriously was everyone around you taking what you were doing. And because of that, I think people that are in those um, positions where they really have to be um, responsible for their own outcome and their own success, for me, it went on to be uh, the foundation to be an entrepreneur. It was very tied into that. And I realized early on, I didn't want to have a job. I didn't want to just be an employee that anything I did, I wanted to have now what I would call extreme ownership. It's one of my favorite business management books and ideas of extreme ownership, but that I really wanted to be doing something where I was responsible for the outcome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Talk to me about the the sort of uh, stage we were at when you finished college in terms of, you know, generation of consoles. And I guess for, you know, the sake of my own timeline, like I think of generations of consoles in the following order. It's like, you know, sort of Nintendo, Sega Genesis, uh, then the Dreamcast era, then we get to PlayStation and then we get to now, which is insane, like the Xbox era. <laughs> so I think for us, uh, it was all about PS2. Keep in mind, we were, you know, somewhat poor college students, so it was very precious. This was also the era of Blockbuster, so you could go rent a game for the weekend at, at Blockbuster. Mm -hmm. uh, and certainly the game I remember the most was, I don't know if it was Driver or Driver 2. Now, you know, that's a, a little fine detail, but... For me, it was the greatest driving game ever, had the best physics ever, which is always a problem in every driving game. And we could sit around playing that game on PS2 for, you know, hours and days on end. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think that the the thing that has always struck me, because I'll, I'll go back and watch YouTube clips of some of the video games we used to play as kids, you know, especially because my primary video game is NBA 2K. That like I play that in Madden and that's pretty much it. Uh, I, I remember even when we were buying the the Xbox Series X or the one that came after Xbox One, uh, my friend said, he's like, well, he's like, you don't need to get the more expensive one. You and I only both play one game anyway. So who cares <laughs> if you don't have more hard drive space? Like, good point. Uh, but. 
I think that the the thing that has always struck me when I compare the video games from sort of the, you know, like mid 90s or late 80s to sort of what we see on the screen today is just how much progress we've made in terms of, you know, the graphic design. Like, I can't tell you that there's been more than a handful of times where my dad will come into our home theater. He'll see me playing a game and he's like, oh, are you guys watching a game on TV? And we're like, no, this is a video game uh, because they've gotten that good. Uh, so one, you know, obviously the technology has evolved significantly to be able to do things like that. But what actually goes into the creative process of building a game from scratch? Like, how does you know something go from like an idea to NBA 2K, which we've gotten every year for 20 years? Yeah, well, certainly graphics quality, I, I think, is, you know, incredible uh, today. But, you know, as we were talking about earlier, one of the things that I've always loved about video games is how immersive they are in your your own internal creative mind. And, you know, again, we always saw the characters. I didn't see them as like pixelated. I saw them as like real people in real environments and I think the fact that the technology is, if you will, backfilling that uh, for each individual is incredibly exciting. Uh, I had an interesting experience the other day where I was watching television and I felt like the TV show I was watching, which was live action, to me looked like and felt like a video game. Um, and in this case, it wasn't anything that was meant to look like or had anything to do really with a video game. It was just how the lighting and the camera technology and the fact that we're often watching things on, you know, screens like an iPad or a computer. Um, so I think it's amazing how it's all really converged, if you will, as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and for me, kind of another separate topic is, how it's opened up the potential for new types of narrative, um, which I think is is really exciting. But to your point or question about, you know, how do you make a video game? Uh, it is, in my opinion, the most difficult creative process in the world that I am familiar with. Um, as I've always said, if you're making a game, you're going to want to spend every second and every dollar making the best game possible. You will never be done with it, which I think is what most painters or, you know, visual artists say. It's not that you're done. It's that you stop. Mm. Um, and you have to be absolutely committed to perfection at every single aspect of it from the original concept to the writing to the user interface to the physics if that's relative to the gameplay to ultimately then the publishing and marketing which most people don't necessarily think about but Typically, your marketing budget is going to be equal to, if not greater than, your production budget, very similar to Hollywood feature films. Yeah. So the amount of effort and investment, whether you're making a small independent game or a AAA video game, is, as I said before, beyond anything else that I can think of. And in fact, it incorporates almost all of the other 
creative industries and endeavors into it, right? Music, visual arts, animation, film, writing, um, graphic design, user interface, programming, uh, packaging, marketing, advertising, like basically every industry that you think of comes together to make a video game. Yeah. Well, I think I, I don't remember which Grand Theft Auto it was. It might have been four. Um, if, if it was, I might be dating myself, but if I remember correctly, it was 2008 when it came out. And I remember I had a, a PlayStation 2 and I bought it. Uh, and I remember uh, somewhere reading a headline that that video game had generated more money in a weekend than Spider-Man had. And I was, you know, it kind of blew my mind. But when I told a friend that, he's like, that's insane. And I said, yeah, but if you think about sort of the demographic of video games, right? It's actually not little kids. It's people like you and me, because we were the ones who grew up playing this stuff. And I thought about it. I was like, okay, well, who has, you know, $60, $70 to spend on a video game? People your age and my age won't bat an eyelash. Because I remember, you know, when you'd ask your parents for a Nintendo game when you were a kid in the you know mid 80s, it was like $40. <laughs> I got maybe one or two a year if I was lucky. You know, and so we played Super Mario Brothers endlessly because it came with the console. Yeah, it was definitely birthday and Hanukkah uh, for me to to get a new game when I was a, a kid. And absolutely, the the age has continued to increase. I've been a little out of the industry for a couple of years, so I don't know the latest. But you know, typically your average gamer would be in their early to mid thirties, so they're not teenagers in their parents' basement, which is the old stereotype. Um, they've probably gone on now to have huge segments in their 40s and even early 50s. Um, as you said, they have disposable income. They grew up playing video games. And I think really importantly, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, to a decent degree, not totally, the stereotypes have really been broken down and dismissed. Yeah. Um, everyone plays video games. It's the most widely, uh, engaged in entertainment globally. And, you know, it's not just seen as like geeks and nerds, even though it still might be, you know, sort of packaged that way or, or, or presented in pop culture that way. Yeah. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, I, I you know, even my mom used to play Super Mario Brothers with us. Like that was the so, kind of thing it was in our household. She would like we would be fighting over the controller, and she'd be like, "It's my turn," you know. Uh, which well, was and to that point, my my brother in law is my age, and his son is uh, in is is eight years old, and they play video games together. And now you're going to have a new generation growing up playing video games, mm-hmm. yeah. and it's a it's a experience that they can bond on and share to the point we're having earlier just as much as them going out and playing soccer on a Saturday which they do as well Mm -hmm. so talk to me about your post video game career like what has happened since you know video games like what have you been into uh and then let's talk about the future of what gaming is going to look like sure so I I've had the the benefit being over in Europe for the last few years and really thinking about the kinds of projects that I want to work on. And for me, the things that I want to work on are things that have really positive global impact. And so one of the projects that I'm working on that's just on the cusp of launching, so I love sharing it here, is a new coffee brand, which is very different from everything that I've done in the past, but again, utilizes so much of the skills that I've developed. And what's really unique about the coffee brand is that we share 50% of the profits from each bag sold with the farmers in Uganda. And so it's not a donation. It's not a charity. It's a new type of global supply chain where everyone can be treated equitably and can not only sell their product at market rates, but can also benefit 
from the uh, retail side of the business where more of the value is created because of the, you know, markup in a product for retail sales. So long-winded way of saying what I've been working on for most of the last year is a a new coffee brand called Carico. It's online at carico.shop. It'll be launching in the next few days. And it's really been something new for me, but where I've been able to apply so much of my skill set that I've developed over the last 25 plus years as an entrepreneur in the technology industry. Yeah. So you mentioned this whole idea of supply chain and farmers. So talk about what the conditions are like for them prior to somebody like you coming along, like when they're having to deal, for example, with like a Starbucks from, you know, I know that, you know, the the basic public relations line is to basically say, oh, you know, we treat our farmers well, blah, 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 blah. I mean, you know, the drill. Um, so like, what is the reality of that for people? I'll admit that I'm learning. Uh, we're just getting ready to to launch the brand. But in fact, tomorrow I have a call with a gentleman in Uganda who is locally running a huge tree planting campaign, both to preserve the soil on the slopes where the coffee is grown, but it also provides a very important ecosystem for the other food uh, staples that they grow and consume locally. So, you know, you can say that tree planting is really important for these farmers in the community, also really important for providing the coffee that, you know, the Western consumer wants to have high quality specialty coffee, single origin, you know, grown by farmers and, you know, very high quality product. So that's what everybody wants, but what it takes is local people who are committed to their community now having the resources to be able to enact uh, programs and plans that they know will benefit their communities. And in that regard, there isn't much incentive for, you know, a U.S. based, uh, stock market listed company to do anything beyond charity and donations, which ultimately are not going to have a huge impact. There's no incentive for that company to share revenue back, not share revenue, share profits back with those farmers who will really benefit from it. And so as we learn more about the challenges that they're having, which are intense, What we believe is the right solution and that we're enacting is to fairly share the profits of the retail market with the farmers and then directly allow them to use the funds the way they see best in their community. And it's worth pointing out the Carico Group has been organizing community farmers in Uganda since 1955. And what we're doing now is finally providing them with a U.S.-based retail reach for their product. It's been distributed wholesale and otherwise for quite a while, but penetrating the U.S. retail market is not straightforward. Well, that's such a a drastic shift from, you know, making video games to selling coffee. Uh, So, like, why did you choose 
this in particular? I know you mentioned you know the idea of a global impact, and there are probably a whole host of things you could do. Sure. So, so for me, the start of this was wanting to create an e-commerce business with my sister, who uh, is one of the four partners in the U.S. business, and we had the parameter that I stated earlier. We wanted to do. We wanted to be creating an e-commerce business that had a positive global impact. Um, nothing against video games. And I do think that they have various positive impacts, but, you know, something that was definitively clear or positive, you know, sharing profit with farmers in Uganda. There's not a lot of debate about the positivity of that. So we started looking into various products and, if you get into really any business, particularly e-commerce, what you end up focusing on is supply chain. Uh, do you have a solid, reliable supply chain? And in discussing it with a friend of mine who is one of the other four partners, she shared with me her involvement with the Carico Group where they had already been doing import-export. They had developed this supply chain over roughly 70 years, but they didn't have the experience and expertise for, let's call it the last mile. And in many ways, that last mile isn't very different from the last mile on a video game. Um, you've got to make the product. You've got to get it into a warehouse. You have to find a way to market it and promote it and sell it. You've got to be able to fulfill it. You've got to be able to provide customer service. You have to be able to build a business plan, know how you're going to finance it, what are your cost of goods and cost of sales. All of these things are the same for any business. And now we were able to apply it to this existing supply chain that was really just missing, as I said, that last mile. So... In some ways, we tripped into coffee. Um, neither my sister and I are very big coffee drinkers. It's not that we're coffee aficionados, but we're really good at building businesses. We're really good at e-commerce and supply chain. And now we're able to apply it to something that has more meaning, if you will, than other options we could have pursued. Well, well talk to me about specifically building businesses because you've been doing it since you were young and you know this is something that i kind of dis discovered after going to business school it's like business school doesn't teach you a damn thing about running a business it teaches you how to be an employee in somebody else's and you get out of the when you start the first business like there are all these sort of idiosyncrasies that don't express themselves until you do the thing because i see so many people just kind of standing on the sidelines like oh i'm gonna wait until i'm ready and i'll, and I'll give you a, a ridiculous example so um, I have one friend uh, who's been a guest here on the show uh, and another friend I went to business school with. Uh, and I remember he was working at a, a pretty big company, the, one, the friend who uh, I went to business school with. And he kept talking to me about wanting to start this business. And he had the skills to do it. Like he was you know, in high demand. He's getting paid very well. He printed a business card. My other friend who didn't go to any like special school or anything like that um, was, you know, basically uh, he lost his job six months before he was about to get married and he and his soon to be wife had just bought a house together. He didn't print a business card, he didn't do anything. He literally just put up a video tutorial, you know, showing people how to use Airtable, put a link at the bottom saying, 
book a, a book a, a consultation with me and he made $10,000 in the first month and now they're on track to do a million dollars in you know in revenue this year. So obviously like there are two different ways to think about this but you've had experience building multiple businesses like one let, let's talk about starting like what do people get wrong at the start? So I, I've done a lot of advisory and consulting work for entrepreneurs who have ideas and want to either invest their own capital or raise capital to build businesses. And so I, I think I've seen a lot of the challenges and uh, um, issues that that early entrepreneurs, idea stage, as I would call it, entrepreneurs run into. And I, I would say a big part of it for me is not about building a business plan and what, you know, would often be, I, I think, sort of business school 101. For me, a lot of it really comes down to building out a financial model that includes two very important things. Um, it includes the broad strokes of all of your, um, costs and, uh, resources that you're going to need. You're not going to get it right. Every model's wrong, but at least it's going to give you a sense of, wow, I'm going to need 10 employees and this much capital and that sort of thing. And then the other thing that I think is really important in a financial model is unit economics whether that's your arbitrage of cost per acquisition versus lifetime revenue in some businesses, whether it's your cost of goods and cost of sales versus, you know, the retail price, whatever it is, I think it's really important to have those metrics around your unit economics. And again, mm -hmm. you're going to get these costs wrong and you're going to get these unit economics wrong. But first of all, what it's going to let you do is sort of gut check everything. Um, is this a viable idea? Will it work at scale? Um, what are the resources I'm going to be able, that I'm going to need to be able to achieve these goals? And I think that I see very often that people don't put in the work to do that for whatever reason. And again, I'm starting from the caveat that whatever model you build will be probably 90% wrong, but the information and perspective that you will gain from building that model is some of the most priceless information you will have in the early stage of your business. It's interesting you mentioned unit economics because I, after reading Adam Smith's book, The Wealth of Nations, I sat down and, and did that for the podcast. And like, you know, I, I thought about it. I was like, okay, what most people might think is, okay, I'm just going to account for, you know, the cost of whatever service I'm using to record the podcast, Riverside FM, right? But I was like, okay, well, we pay a design firm every month. We pay an audio engineer every month. Then we've got our hosting costs. And I was like, okay, now it, it was actually very eye-opening to do that. I was like, okay, now I know actually what it really costs to produce a single episode every month. It, exactly. And then, you know, for a podcast, I would imagine you're making money from advertising and sponsorship, let's say, yeah. and then you have these expenses. And so you would model out, well, if I reach this many viewers, I could sell this much sponsorship. and. This is going to be my revenue rate on that sponsorship or advertising. And I think just doing the math on that, 
becomes very eye-opening, as you said, especially because a lot of the mathematical functions involved in this become very large, right? Like using advertising as an example, it's all based typically on CPM, cost per thousand. Um, and when you divide, start dividing things by a thousand, um, your, you know, revenue very quickly becomes a lot smaller. Uh, your audience needs to be a lot larger to be able to achieve the, the goals that you have to fund all of the expenses that, that you just explained. And so I think that by just doing some really basic math, you, you're able to very quickly, you know, be able to see, is this viable? What's it going to take? And then I think the last piece of that is also what's the real market addressable market that you're going to reach? Mm -hmm. um, who are you really going to be able to reach with this product? Is that market large enough that when you divide it by all of these other large numbers that you're going to get to a profitability at the end of it? Mm -hmm. And I think that when you start to filter all of that into a model and for most people doing an Excel spreadsheet isn't very fun. I actually find it very fun and, and almost like a, um, artistic activity, if you will, mm -hmm. which I think is something that people often sort of don't want to engage with. They're like, Oh, Excel maths, that's no fun. I don't want to do it, but it's such an important part of the early gestational process for a startup. Yeah. It, it's funny you're talking, talking about this in particular, the math, because my dad and I were having a, a somewhat heated discussion. So, you know, I have a cousin who's a, a you know, a tech employee who got laid off and she's been talking about, you know, different business ideas for a while. And I, you know, I said, like, why don't you start a pop-up restaurant? And my dad and I were talking about this. He said, look, I told her to price it at $200 to start. You know, it's a small group of people. It's 20 people every month. He's like, that's absurd. Who's going to pay $200? I was like, you're a cheap Indian. So you might think that nobody will pay $200. <laughs> but, you know, we, we couldn't seem to get like, I couldn't get him to understand the point. I was like, dad, look, you can't compare a Costco or Amazon to a small business because they don't have the same numbers. Like they, those places have to charge much higher prices. And he was like, I was like, you should absolutely be thinking about profit from day one. He was like, no, you should establish your brand. I'm like, you're a professor in agriculture. Like you've never <laughs> built a business. Um, and I, I think that, you know, the idea that you're not thinking about turning a profit on your first attempt is ludicrous. Like I said, yeah, you might take a loss, but you should not be setting yourself up for one. You should have the numbers so that you don't, uh, which was, yeah, that's a whole aside. But so we're talking about this from a math standpoint. Let's talk about this from a mindset standpoint, because you know firsthand this is not easy like it's not something where somebody hands you an instruction manual it's like hey let me just read this book you know how to start a business 101 and you know next year i'll be worth millions because you know the, the biggest problem with you know textbooks and all this stuff is they don't account for different contexts like it's very generalized information i i agree with that sentiment very strongly and Ultimately, being an entrepreneur, certainly in the venture capital funded space is, is not only not for everyone. It's for very, very few people. Uh, it is easily the most demanding environment. I, I would say in, in the business world that you can get into. 
And in fact, Mike and I coined a term that we call the halo syndrome. And it's a little bit about the sparkle, if you will, of the venture capital startup world versus the reality of it. And that's Mm -hmm. the halo syndrome, if you will. And the reality of it is that it is going to be the most difficult, grueling work of your life. And you really have to think about whether that is actually what you want to do and that you are willing to sacrifice everything that you are going to be required to sacrifice to succeed. And I think you made a very important distinction, which is you said, could you have a startup that from day one is profitable? or near about day one, generating a profit. And I think that is a really great consideration for people to have. And ultimately, that is the biggest difference between, let's say, a retail-oriented or a transactional-oriented startup and a venture capital-funded startup, where a venture capital-funded startup, you have to raise capital to provide you with runway, to develop your product, to find your product market fit and do all of that soon enough that your money doesn't run out, but then also do it well enough that you're going to be able to raise your next round of funding. And I think that is a very, very difficult and challenging environment. And I can speak to that from a lot of personal experience. Yeah, we were fortunate enough to be uh, you know, one of Radio Public's first uh, investments. You know, when they they launched their uh, fund, Pod Fund, and that was you know one of the things. It's like you see more money than you've ever seen in your lifetime in your bank account, and you're like, well, this is not mine. My job is to actually make this grow. And uh, I had one venture capitalist here, I believe Jeffrey Veen, and he was uh, a VP at Adobe, and he said he's like, this is a path that's virtually irreversible once you go down it. And uh, to your point, like this is something that you have to decide that you really want, because I, I remember very distinctly this story. My friend Joseph Logan told me uh, when he was in a, a restaurant in Boulder and there were these two young founders who had just gotten their first round of funding and uh, a VC who was in the restaurant walked them. He's like, why the hell are you guys celebrating? Your life is over. This is not the time to celebrate. <laughs> Uh, because I think that people think of funding as this like moment of celebration. It's like, no, now the work begins. It's kind of like when authors get a book, I always tell them, it's like, you know what? Like you haven't made it. Like now the real work starts. And I'll take that a step further. By the way, that saying, I've never heard it put that way before, that this is virtually irreversible. I'd go so far as to say it is irreversible. Um, But I I like that, uh, that sentiment because I think it is, very true, and it is lost on uh, most people. I'll go out on a limb and say something that might be a bit controversial, and it relates to this idea of the halo syndrome. Venture-funded companies, you are now working for the most demanding boss, and I don't mean leader, I mean boss, that you will ever have. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're not willing to work for the most demanding boss, again, not leader, because they're providing no leadership, they don't care about leading, they care about getting a return on their investment, 
If you're not willing to work for the most demanding boss, the least understanding, the one that truly doesn't care. And again, I'm saying something a bit controversial here, but this is true. Truly doesn't care about you and only cares about you as a return on investment. And as you pointed out, you are now in an irreversible relationship with them. And I think you have to be very eyes wide open to uh, be successful in that scenario. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I I think that um, I want to bring our conversation full circle based on something that you had said, you know, earlier when you were talking about building a game, which I think is equally true for building a company is and that is that you're never really done, you know. And I can't help but think about that, you know, because we've had uh, Justine Musk, Elon's ex-wife here. And I remember her telling me, she said, yeah, what people don't realize, this is actually a good example of Halo Syndrome. She's like, people don't see the amount of work that goes into these accomplishments for people like Elon or Google guys. She's like, this literally comes at the cost of everything in your life. Um, And she's like, I don't think people are aware of how much work, you know, goes into this. I agree. And I think, unfortunately, particularly in the U.S., because there's so much admiration for, you know, billion-dollar unicorns and that sort of thing, there's nothing you can say to communicate to someone who's just entering it to really have them take that to heart. And I certainly can say here, I have lifelong debilitating uh, ailments. One is tinnitus ringing in my ears. Lo and behold, something that you can develop purely from stress, Uh, something that has no treatment and no cure. And for the rest of my life, I'll have tinnitus from the stress of running a venture funded startup. Absolutely. Uh, So this idea that the the work is never done, I think, is so uh, integral to success in any field, because I've seen this with, you know, authors like who in their mind, like they think, okay you know what, uh, I will have made it when I hit the New York Times bestseller list. And John Lee Dumas will ask people this on his podcast. And this is where this sort of thought process stemmed from. He's like, have you ever had an I've made it moment? And, you know, when I heard that question, I thought, you know what? No, because the moment you think you have made it, you're done. Like you will rest on your laurels and you will basically stop doing everything that got you to where you're at. And that's the thing. Like I, who was at uh, Paul Graham uh, in the How to Start a Startup podcast? He said, you know, like you might envy Mark Zuckerberg's life, but you got to remember, here's a guy from the time he was 20 years old who has been running 100 miles an hour. And he said, the other thing is that, you know, even if you have problems, nobody gives a shit because nobody has any sympathy for a billionaire. Uh, And he said, like, he's like, Mark, he said, Mark Zuckerberg never in his life is going to have the opportunity to go backpacking in Thailand. He's like, yeah, he shows up in Thailand in like a private jet. But it's a total, he said, literally from the time he's been 20 years old, he's been just running 100 miles an hour and hadn't, and not able to stop. The work never stops. And what I like to think about now is the idea of personal sustainability and the time period over which you can be personally sustainable. Um, mm-hmm. cause it's totally possible to create a startup where you work an hour or two a day. Um, and it creates enough revenue for you to have the lifestyle that you want. It's definitely not going to be a billion dollar unicorn startup, but it very well could be, uh, 
a, a great business that, you know, sustains yourself and your family. Yeah. And the way I like to think about these timescales is it's unrealistic to think that you would be sustainable over a day, right? Sometimes you just have a bad day. Um, you know, something happens, there's a problem, what have you. Probably very realistic to be sustainable over, let's say, a year, right? Like, could I do last year what I, uh, you know, do this year? Probably, um, for, for most startup folks. So there's some window in between that you or I want to find a level of sustainability. Mm-hmm. And for me, mathematically, I've been thinking about it a lot. I think it's about nine days. It's a yeah. little more than a week. And if I could have nine days that I could basically do those nine days forever, um, some are going to be worse. Some are going to be better. Some are going to have ups. Some are going to have downs. Some will be life changing. Some will be boring. But if I can have some sustainability in that, for me, I think that is the goal that most entrepreneurs, most artists, because artists are entrepreneurs, um, most producers of, let's say, film, TV, music, artists, writers like yourself, as you mentioned, that's the level of sustainability that I really think people should be striving for, because I just think they're going to find a lot more happiness in it than this idea that I'm chasing the ultimate cash out, if you will. Mm-hmm. Totally. There are two things that I, I think about, you know, from, from all of this, uh, you know, after doing the first round, I started thinking about a series A and one of my friends told me, he said, you realize he's like, your lifestyle is basically, you like to go out and snowboard whenever you want. You travel whenever you want. You, you know, take surf trips. He's like, that's going to change. He said, you, you got to remember, like you built this and you're going to create the very thing you tried to, you, you built this to avoid, which is having to go to an office every day and deal with people. He said, you want to build a $100 million unicorn? That's not going to happen. He's like, you're going to have to be in an office. You're going to have to deal with teams. You're going to have to hire people. He's like, the question is, do you really want that? And it was, that was one of those like come to Jesus moments where I was like, you know, I am buying into this halo effect. Um, because it, yes. it was like, oh, that is glamorous on paper. And, but the reality of it is very different. I, I think that communicates that idea so incredibly well uh, of sure it seems cool or glamorous or you know aspirational private jet fly somewhere do all these really exclusive things but you're probably not doing that in a sustainable way meaning you're not doing that every nine days you're probably doing that once or twice a year and you're essentially cramming for it on all sides to make room for it. You probably have a bunch of problems that you deal with during that time. Maybe there's another paradigm that has a lot of the same facets of that. You know, you do get to go on a holiday. It is in a great place. You do interact with really cool people, but you're doing it in a very... I keep using the word sustainable. I think another word for it would be humane wedding. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's one last thing that I want to 
uh, talk to you about it. Sam Altman in the Y Combinator Startup School podcast, which I go through that every couple of months just because I find it to be sort of like an MBA in a, a nine hour podcast better than business school. Uh, there's something that he says to founders the the two things that always stayed with me. Uh, one was this idea of long-term commitment. And he says your greatest competitive advantage is a long-term commitment. And then he defined it as 10 years. You know, he said a lot of people think that I'm going to work on this thing for three to four years. And, you know, to your point, you know, sit on the beach, you know, like counting my cash and investing in startups or whatever it is that you know, they dream of. And he said, and the reality is it's a 10-year commitment at a minimum. Um, then the other thing that he said in the very end, he talks about managing your psychology. And he said, you know, people think it gets better uh, when you become successful. But the truth is, it actually gets worse. <laughs> which I, I thought was so striking. He said, you know, like you basically have a world of problems. And he said, you know, like the higher you rise, the greater the fall uh, it, it, more or less. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but I can see why he would say that, right? Like it's a whole other level of challenges that you just are not prepared to deal with. Like I doubt Zuckerberg when he was sitting in his dorm room at college thought one day I'm going to be held responsible for the disruption of a fucking presidential election. I, I perceive that, uh, Hopefully he wasn't thinking that and probably uh, unlikely. Yeah. I, I think that a- advice um, is spot on that it's going to be 10 years and it's only going to get more difficult. Uh, when you start out, you don't have competitors because you don't have a product. You're not doing anything yet. Uh, it's only as you start to create the disruption that you set out to do that now you have people that see you as a competitor, see you as someone who's disrupting, let's say, maybe a, a industry or a paradigm that they don't want changed. I think that the advice that Altman's giving is spot on. It's going to be longer and more difficult, and it's going to continue to get more difficult, and it's going to come to a crescendo at the exit. Because that's the most difficult point. That is the greatest point of risk. So, in fact, what you said is true. It is inverse proportional in terms of success to the challenge and difficulty that you are going to be having. And Mm -hmm. it is ultimately going to come to an apex as you ultimately end up hopefully having some kind of a an exit scenario for the business, which, by the way, of course, is the only reason anyone invested. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, this has been incredible. I feel like you could basically teach, you know, business school for you know creatives uh, based on just this conversation alone. Uh, so uh, I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Being true to yourself. Amazing. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your wisdom and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work and everything that you're up to? Sure. Anyone can find me online at Blaine Global, uh, the website or most socials, um, and would look forward to hearing from folks. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, 
K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.